We'll be in Psalm 27 today. Sorry, I got a little blinky eye there. My wife always enjoys it when I tear up a little bit because I don't do it very often. So she's not here in the building today. So go ahead, honey. Can you see him? Yep. Blinky eye. Psalm 27. I was about 10 years old when my best friend in the neighborhood moved away. Have you ever had that happen to you, like your best friend moves away? And he moved far away. Like he didn't move across town. He moved all the way to North Carolina. Now, I grew up in Virginia, so he was three or four hours away. And I can remember going for a visit, like a whole week, to go down and visit my best friend. My parents took me down there and dropped me off. Of course, I didn't drive. I was 10. And while I was there, we did some touristy things. We did some things to go hang out and have fun. And we went and visited the USS North Carolina, a World War II battleship. Now, I don't know where I became fascinated with, with military technology. Maybe it was that day when we visited this huge warship. Uh, I served in the Navy, probably because of Top Gun. Did not fly airplanes. I rode around in an old bucket of rubber. This is the USS North Carolina. It's an amazing piece of machinery. It's an amazing and it's set up as a monument in Wilmington, North Carolina, when tours and stuff reopen, highly, highly recommended. From a time where, you know, iron ships were a big thing. And they are a big thing. I remember going onto the bridge and noticing the armor that it, that it was made of. And, uh, it, Derek, if you could hit that next slide, it was like 15 inches thick of solid steel. This is the door. Can you imagine this being your door? What can get through that? To a 10-year-old, it looked like it was impregnable. It was, you can't get in. And because I had a little brother, I wanted this door on my bedroom so that he couldn't get in. <laughs> a floating fortress, indestructible, unsinkable. Well, okay, maybe not all the way unsinkable, but in the eyes of a 10-year-old, it was, it was impossible that this could ever be defeated. The engineers who designed the armor had a very specific threat in mind. They said, hey, there's going to be other ships out there. They're going to shoot stuff at us. How thick do we have to make it? How big does it have to be so that we can uh, withstand the forces of the enemy? When you know what threatens you, you make a place of safety. You make your own fortress. Where is your place of safety? Where is your fortress? We're looking at Psalm 27 today. It's a song in the Old Testament about a place of ultimate safety found in God and in God alone. We've talked about, now we just finished up our 2 Timothy series. So we finished 2 Timothy and we're kind of taking a, a little bit of a pause to just do a psalm and think about you know a different part of the Bible for a minute. Psalms are great because most of the time you can just do one or two and, and, and one or two sermons and then move to something else. So we'll do Psalm 27 today. Next week we'll talk about Romans 14. Romans 14 is all about getting along. And I think it's an appropriate place to start as we come back together. We're going we're gonna to have to get along. And then we're going to launch into a summer series called Back to the Beginning, where we'll talk about the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Kind of excited about that. Psalms are the songs of ancient Israel. They're written at various times before the New Testament, so they're thousands of years old sometimes. Well, all the time. Some of them are sad. Some of them deal with injustice. They are the poems and songs of ancient Israel. Each one of them wraps theology in poetry 
to have an effect, an emotional effect on you, to break down your defenses and get through to your heart. Because, folks, our hearts are often very stubborn places, I'm reminded. Poetry restates theology using an image, a picture made from words. Images get through where nothing else does. If you have, um, so we've been watching a couple more movies now that we're you know, not doing as much with other folks, you know, having people over and everything. And one of the movies we watched recently was um, The Way Back with Ben Affleck. It's a basketball movie. Now you know how a basketball movie is going to go. There's going to be an underdog team, an unlikely coach, and a big finish, right? You know it. But what happens when the underdog team comes back and wins? It just gets me all choked up. It's like, yes, they won. I knew they were going to win. What's the director doing? He's taking advantage of me. He's connecting with my heart, not so much with my head. Or you could think about uh, the movie Call of the Wild. Did you see Call of the Wild? Where there's a computer graphics dog. He's there's never a, there's no real dogs in the movie. Isn't that crazy? And so here you have a computer animated dogs. You know what? They'll steal your heart if you're not careful. And so here we are watching these um, computer animated dogs, uh, and Buck is fighting against Fitz for leadership of the team, and they're snapping and growling, and you're just—it's a fight scene, and you're into it. You're like, you know, Buck's gonna win. I mean, the call of the wild, that's, you had to read that in high school. You know Buck's going to win. That's the whole premise of the movie. But you're still cheering for him. Come on, dude, you can do it. And he does it. He gets through to your heart. We watched 1917. Kind of a lot of movies going on right now, right? We watched 1917 this week. And there was an airplane crash. And the hero of the story nearly gets taken out. Spoiler alert. I felt like it connected with me in my fight or flight response. I need to run away. There's a plane going to crash into the... Oh, wait, it's just on the television. Maybe my TV's too big, right? <laughs> Poetry uses an image to get straight to the heart, to bypass some of our rational processes, to, to get to our feelings, and then give us time to reflect about. And then we can back away and think about our emotions about it. And so reading the Psalms involves reproducing the theological message, to understand the theology of the psalm, but then also to understand the emotional impact of the psalm. And you can think about the Bible as like a delicious meal, where there are different things we want to eat. And we want to enjoy the emotional parts, just like we want to enjoy the theological parts, and think through the rational parts. When we read the Psalms, we should try to see and feel the message. This Psalm, Psalm 27, is about confidence when you are surrounded by enemies. You'll need a powerful place of protection. The main idea of this message comes from the first section of the Psalm. In verse 3, it says, I will be confident. And the reason in verse 1 is because the Lord is the stronghold of my life. So take a look at the first six verses of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will make music. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Psalm 27 is a song of trust in God through difficult circumstances. That's the rational part of things. But picture yourself surrounded by enemies. Picture yourself surrounded by people who want to, or animals, wild animals, that just want to eat you up. That's the picture that David creates here. And so David repeats the question, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Well, you know what? David had a life that was filled with trouble. He had good reason to be afraid of various and sundry people. Saul was the appointed king of Israel, but he disobeyed God. And the, the prophet Samuel came and anointed David to replace Saul. But Saul didn't step down. And so who's the king? Um, and what's David supposed to do about all this? Well, David is waiting on the Lord. He's trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. How to respect Saul and patiently wait for the Lord. Saul and David had a difficult relationship with one another. Because David was an important part of Saul's army. David was one of the guys who came and played music. By the way, wasn't our team on fire this morning? Get ready, because it's coming back. Um, David would play music for the king and help him calm down. They had a difficult, difficult relationship. It was a season of chaos where Saul is actually on and off trying to kill David. Like, not as a metaphor, literally trying to kill him, throwing spears at him. In Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 23, so can you just think, just feel that tension for a minute. You're so much in trouble with the king for no reason that he's trying to kill you. At the same time, you're trying to make sure that you're helping people. Being the right kind of king. 1 Samuel 23 tells a story about David's life where David hears that the Philistines are causing problems. And so he gets together his, his band of warriors and he heads out to take care of it. And he does. He's chasing the Philistines all around. He's protecting Israelite people. He's doing what a king should do in the ancient world. And Saul hears about it. So Saul decides to take some of his guys and go get David. So here you have David on the one hand, he's the aggressor, he's chasing the Philistines around, which is dangerous in and of itself. And all the whole time, Saul is the guy who's got his guys chasing David around. Well, that sounds like fun. That sounds like chaos. I'm sure David slept well at night, right? He's chasing and being chased at the same time. So that's 1 Samuel 23. In chapter 24, David and his men are literally hiding in a cave. 
from Saul. They've taken care of the Philistines. That's not a problem anymore. Now they're hiding out in the back of a cave. Because you know what happens next? Saul comes into the cave. He has to go potty. And so he comes into the cave. Literally, the man is relieving himself. That's what the text says. He's going potty. You can tell I have grandchildren. You need to go boom, boom? Okay. What did David's men say? Right there. He's busy. Kill him. David sneaks up and gets so close that he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. You know what happens next? He feels guilty about it. Because he raised his hand against the Lord's anointed, against the, the anointed king of Israel. See, David is waiting for Saul to come to his senses and step down. That's what he should be doing, and he doesn't. And so in chapter uh, 24 of 1 Samuel... Verses 11 through 12, it says this. Uh, David comes out of the cave and he calls to Saul. Hey, dangerous, right? See my father? See the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hand. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. I don't know that I would have the same restraint that David had. And so in a moment of clarity, Saul comes to his senses and he sort of realizes, wait, that's right, David is supposed to take over after me. I'm the one who's supposed to be stepping down. But Saul has concerns. In the ancient world, it was customary for the new king to eradicate the old king's family. And so one of Saul's concerns is his children and grandchildren. And so he asked David not to hurt his children. And David swore this to Saul, then Saul went home. David swore that he wouldn't hurt Saul's children or grandchildren. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. You see, David is fighting against the enemies of the nation of Israel at the same time that the leader of the nation of Israel is trying to kill him. He's chasing and being chased at the same time. He's hiding in caves for protection and safety. And he has to retreat to a literal stronghold. And here's the picture that David presents in the psalm. When the wicked advance to devour me. The original is a little bit, uh, I, I like the ESV here, it says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. And so the picture is not just bad people who want to do bad things to me. It's bad people who are so bad they're pictured as animals. They want to tear my flesh apart. And David says, I am surrounded. Though an army besiege me. David's enemies get pictured as these hungry wolves snapping and biting. And David feels himself surrounded. And so he draws this picture in the first part of the psalm. Of, hey, look, I'm surrounded by these terrible, horrible enemies. But he says, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. And the next part of the psalm, it moves on. Verses 4 to 6, David is in the presence of God and captured by his beauty. 
He sees himself in the house of the Lord, just overcome by the beauty of God. The tabernacle is uh, where David was accustomed to worshiping the Lord, that later became the temple. And so you have this picture in David's mind of everything that's surrounding him. And he comes back to the place where he's got a relationship with God, where he is worshiping the Lord. When David enters this place, he's in the place where God meets with him. And in God's presence is David's place of safety, his fortress. While he's in this fortress, he seeks three things from God. In verse 4 it says to dwell in the house of the Lord, just to be there. Now don't mix up the church with the temple. This is not a temple, this is a building. The presence of God is in you wherever you are. All believers carry around the Holy Spirit. Don't confuse those two things. For David, he said he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, because the place was where he was in the presence of God. And to inquire in his temple. All of these things are about David's relationship with God. He wants that relationship with God, and he sees it as his fortress. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. When I think about gazing on something beautiful, I remember um, <clears throat> I remember when we went on my daughter's senior trip to Washington, uh, D.C. And we went to the National Gallery of Art. Now, I have learned to appreciate art as I've gotten older. However, the National Gallery of Art, lame, don't want to go. So I was drugged to the National Gallery of Art until I got there and started realizing, you know, all those old pictures that you see, all those, you know, Rembrandts and stuff, the colors there are amazing. The colors are captivating. And so I can remember walking around thinking, someone painted that? That is amazing. That's what David is thinking about as he's talking about gazing on the Lord. He's in the place where the presence of God is and he is just overcome with the beauty of God. He's blown away in the presence and power of God. Now, God is not limited by location. We know that. David knows that. But for him, the act of coming to God in worship was the overwhelming feeling of being in God's fortress, of being in God's presence. It would be an act of idolatry to believe that a building is sacred, so don't make the church out to be something it's not. David is focused on God. And he receives, in verse 5, he receives protection and a hiding place in God. Now David was accustomed to hiding in caves and camping in strongholds. But what he says here is, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Because when you're up high on a rock, nobody can get to you. And so David sees God as these places of protection. Isn't it interesting what David doesn't say? He doesn't say, I'm going to come to God and God is going to give me the things that I need to defeat the enemy. Dear God, I'd like a tank. He doesn't say that. Dear God, give me a strong army. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't say, hey, dear God, make sure I can hide in the deep caves of my enemies. He says, dear God, you are what I need. You are my fortress. His relationship to God is the fortress. That's what it means to be lifted high on a rock. He's untouchable. 
And that doesn't mean that David isn't going to go hide in a cave where it's needed or camp out in a stronghold where that's necessary. This is his orientation theologically, how he thinks about his life. Okay, I'm going to have to go into danger. I'm going to make sure I'm straight with God. And he promises three things in verse 6 to 6. I will sacrifice, I will sing, and I will make music. He will be able to be in the presence of God. He will be able to, to worship in the manner that he's accustomed to. What's the safest place you can think of? I asked his mom, I said, hey, what's the safest place you can think of? She said, home with you. I said, you know, well, okay. <clears throat> Thanks. Thanks for that vote of confidence. And that's a natural place to feel safe. You, you orient your home towards safety. I mean, do you lock your doors at night? I do. You know. We can lock the doors at night. We have we might have security systems or cameras. I have a big dog. Uh, she's very very unfriendly uh, to people that she doesn't know. I would imagine if someone came and broke into the house at night, she'd have an opinion about that. And, and she would announce that opinion pretty forcefully. Some of us have home protection firearms. Our homes are largely protected against intruders. But have you heard about this goofy virus that's going around? Big dogs don't do anything against that. Security cameras can't see it. Maybe we need squirt guns loaded with sanitizer. I don't know. What's your fortress? What's your safe place? You see, David was faced with con constant danger. And he trusted the one fortress that cannot be overcome. God is his stronghold. His relationship to the one true God is the thing that he comes back around to and he says, look, there's a lot of danger around me. I'm going to trust in God. Not that God's going to wipe out all the enemies. And, no, there's still enemies in David's life. There's still enemies in ours. What's your fortress? What's the thing that you trust ultimately? Is it your body? We were joking this morning on the freight train. Guess what? Your body's going to fail you. I'm so sorry to tell you. I hope you. I hope that doesn't happen, but I know it will. Your money? No. Money can kind of do this, right? Your home? Unless it's on a floodplain. And the dam fails. Your government, your friends. David had all of that and more. No matter how strong these things appear, they are temporary. You need an eternal fortress. And so set your mind on God. Set your hopes in the one place where they cannot be shaken. Come back around to trust in the Lord. David looked to the location where God met with him as a place of safety and security. He was safe only in the presence of an eternal almighty God. We don't look to a place. We look to a person. And if, if you happen to drive by here, if you happen to be listening right now, and you don't know Jesus Christ, man, I tell you what, I would love to just sit down and have a Zoom meeting with you or a conversation. God is the fortress that gives you confidence. And so I am the confident one. That's what it says in the text right there. Uh, where was it? Verse 3, right at the end. I will be confident. And the way that's constructed, I am the confident one. Why? Because God is my stronghold. I am the confident one. He will protect me. Take a look at verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me. Answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. 
Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. The tone of the psalm changes here. It changes from from David being in that place of worship to David having his address with God, where he he talks to God directly and forcefully using imperatives. Now, I I always twitch a little bit when I think about using an imperative voice with Almighty God. When can you do that? Where can you do that? Verse 7 through 10 express intimacy. Hear me. Mercy me. Answer me. Who can you say that to without risk of misunderstanding or offense? Whose face can you get into? While there's the Rona, don't get in anybody's face. But, I think about when, when my brother calls. I've got my phone set to where if my brother calls, it rings, it rings true day or night. He's my brother. If he calls, he needs something. My mom. My mom, if she calls, she needs something. My wife, if she calls, she gets my attention immediately. If my wife, I don't carry my phone up here. She might be trying to call me right now. If my phone was here and she called me, I'd say, excuse me, folks, this is, this is obviously something very important. And then she'd probably be teasing me, wouldn't she? David demands God's attention to his present problem on the basis of their relationship. Because David has this intimate relationship with God, he says, hey, God, I've got some things I want to put on the table. Hear me. Answer me. Help me. My heart says of the Lord, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Verse 8 shows this intimacy of our relationship to God face to face. face. It's uncomfortable unless you are deeply intimate with the other person. David's heart, the source of his being, says seek his face. And this is a metaphor to desire intimacy with the one true God. David's picture is one of an intimate love that he has for God. The extent of God's love is greater than the love that a parent has for a child. It's beautiful to think that God wants that kind of intimacy with us. And so in the place of God's presence, David seeks intimacy. And within that intimacy, he says, God, I want to walk after you. I want to follow you. And so the way that he says it is, teach me, cause me to learn this lesson. Cause me to learn how to walk in your way. You see, there's a difference between teaching and telling. I'm off the notes now, so God knows where we're going. You see, I can tell you stuff, right? I tell my grandson stuff. I tell him over and over and over and over and over again. But when I take his hand and I say, no, come, come with me. Let's make sure you've got it right. Let's show you where the toys go. Okay, it's closer. It's intimate. It's making sure that he is caused to learn. Cause me to learn your ways, O Lord. What a prayer for us as well. David is beset with enemies. He sees intimacy with God and walking in God's way as the answer that gives him confidence to face the enemies around him. And David's enemies will exploit any weakness and utter any false accusation they can. And God's obedient servant has no fear. 
Derek Kidner says that David is not only a worshiper seeking God's face, he is a pilgrim committed to his way, every step of it intensely. David is going to walk with God no matter what. When I think about how to <clears throat> illustrate the idea of an intimate relationship where you can say things and get through things, I think about my relationship with my wife. Now, Recently, my wife and I have started doing murder mystery uh, crime boxes. And so the company sends us a box full of evidence, not real crimes. We're not really crime fighters. The, the company sends us a, a box full of uh, imaginary evidence, and we have to figure out who did the crime. Now, my wife, I have come to understand, my wife is an external processor. She wants to talk about it. I am an internal processor. I want to think about it. And so here you have to talk about it and think about it in the same room trying to accomplish the same goal. What's going to happen? Frustration, yeah. There's going to be some there's going to be some sparks, there's going to be some tensions, but inside our relationship, now we've been married 31 years. And so inside that relationship of intimacy, inside that relationship, I know she's not leaving. Our names are both on, on a lot of different legal papers. She's not going. What are you talking about? Inside that intimate relationship, we can have friction. We can be a little demanding sometimes. We had a moment during our last mystery where I found a piece of information and it was inside my head and I hadn't said anything about it. Until all of a sudden she was talking about something and I said, oh yeah, that can't, it has to be this person because of this reason. And she said, well, why didn't you tell me? thinking about it. I'm an internal processor. But apparently she doesn't have access to that. <laughs> intimacy involves working together and working through problems. And David, in this intimate, close relationship to God, because he's been before God before, over and over and over again, he comes to him and he says, help me, God. Help me. I'm surrounded by him. Our lives are often driven by fears and not by faith. David has a lot to fear, more than you and I both. Unless you are actually being hunted by a spear-wielding madman, you're in less trouble than David. And intimacy with God is where David comes back around and draws confidence for daily life. So let me ask you a couple questions. Are you spending some time in silence? In the spiritual discipline of silence, where you turn the TV off, I sometimes get—I sometimes go bananas because my grandson loves to watch TV in my house, and he loves to have the volume turned up. And after a while, I'm like, "Can we just turn that off? Can we just turn that off and have a little quiet?" I'm getting to the age where I like to just sit down for a minute and think about nothing. Are we practicing the spiritual discipline? of silence. What's your prayer life like? Psalm 27 is a psalm, but it's also a prayer. It's David coming to God and talking to him, talking about him, praying to him. Often we ask God to fix things like he's this cosmic mechanic. Hey Lord, my car is broken. Could you help me out? <clears throat> okay. Uh, you can ask God for anything. But if everything that you come to and to him for is just an ask, 
hey, God, can you help me with this? Lord, I'm running a little bit short of money in my bank account. Could you just fluff it up for me? That's not God. That's Santa Claus. You don't want to, don't treat God like he's something that he's not. You can ask God for anything, but you are invited into his presence. But you have to go. You have to go. And this can be different for each of us. Some, some of us experience God's presence in song. Some of us in study. Some of us in silence. Some of us in community. And I know it's hard to have communion right now. There's ways to keep going. There's ways to work around it. Take this psalm this week and read it slowly and reflectively. Ask God for intimacy. I think another thing you could do is take this psalm. It's pretty short. It's only, what, 14 verses? Take it and write it out, word by word, in the translation of your choosing, and then pick a different translation. And then write it out, word by word. Draw a picture of what this psalm looks like. Set aside your requests, and just be with God. Do you desire to follow God's path? Not just ethics, not just mission, but to have steadfast confidence when you're surrounded by enemies. That's a big thing in this psalm. This psalm is about having so much confidence in the presence of God that you can face any enemy and any problem that surrounds you. Are you the confident one? Is God your fortress? Are you the confident one? Are you trusting His protection? And so finally, be the confident one. Fear nothing and wait on the Lord. Look at verse 13. I remain confident of this. You see, we had confidence at the beginning. Here's confidence at the end. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Anybody like waiting? I, I, I don't want to wait. My wife got me something for Father's Day. I want it. I don't know what she buys. Christmas present? Whew. I don't want to wait. I want it now. Usually I'm kind of picky about my Christmas presents, so just let me spend more money than I usually spend, right? That's me. She likes surprises. Fear is easy. Fear is easy. And fear manipulates us. It's often our default reaction to a big problem. Fear conditions us to be afraid of everything and to be afraid again. When a group is overcome by fear, whether it's a military unit, a football team, any group overcome by fear, they forget everything and run. And defeat is inevitable. But what David is saying is face everything and rejoice. Come back to that relationship that you have with the one true God. Come back and sit there for a minute. Come back and gaze on his wonder. Even though you are surrounded by things that are overwhelming, come back to your relationship with God. The last two verses are David's big finish. An exhortation for the community to trust God no matter what. And that confidence is born out of intimacy with God. Fear nothing. And so, hey, Pathways, don't be afraid. Wait on the Pathway, take heart and wait on the Lord. God is at work. I know the world just changed. It's the apocalypse or whatever's happening outside. I, know, I get all that. We're surrounded by enemies. Oh, no. 
Come back to your relationship with God. Sit there for a minute. Rest there. And then you can engage the things that are going on around us. That's your battleship. That's your bunker. That's the place that you need to be. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Nobody and nothing. But that mean, doesn't mean that we abandon prudence and good judgment. David still hid from danger. He still went home to his stronghold. In the age of COVID-19, we're going to be watchful and we're going to be careful. Okay, so we have a service coming up. I've already said evaluate your risk. Plan accordingly. Um, if, you, if you want to walk through what your risks are, by all means, get, get in touch with me. We'll walk through it. We'll walk through what's safest for you. Uh, or if you just aren't concerned about it, that's fine. You know, uh, we're not going to close the doors. We haven't yet. We do have things that we're asking of you, obviously. The most important thing you can do is be kind and respectful to people who disagree with you. Because you see, there's the medical thing over here. There's the legal thing over here. But then there's the heart thing, the relationship that you have with God and the relationship that you have with other believers who don't agree with you. And when the rubber meets the road, this is an act of Christian discipleship. For you to be in a right relationship, first and foremost with God, second and, and importantly with all the people around you. Because I tell you what, the world is watching. The world is watching. What's going on in that church over there? Oh, those people, they're mad. What are they mad about? Nobody knows. Oh, that church went through a split. What did they split about? Didn't like the color of the pews, didn't like wearing masks, didn't like whatever. Sometimes I can't believe the things that happen there. Because what we're called to is to be so enthralled with God, so in love and so intimately connected to who He is, that we're able to love difficult people. I like difficult people. I am one. And so be kind and respectful to people who disagree with you. Being careful is not the same as being fearful. How you respond to each other has the potential to demonstrate the love of God to a world filled with chaos. If you can't get along, if we can't get along as a church, how can we expect to reach the world? And so what David is saying here is spoken to us. To gaze on the wonder that God is. And in that wonder, to be filled with confidence in the face of things that are dangerous.